Second Corinthians chapter 4, this is a tremendous passage, a very great encouragement to my own heart as I studied uh, for it. I want to read it first before we preach it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse number 1. Therefore, remember, therefore, therefore is there to... Ex yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why don't you stand for the reading? All right. Therefore, and uh, so I won't preach while I'm reading it. I'll just read it. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from, excuse me, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but, Christ, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we also live, who live, are, for we who live, excuse me, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we speak, also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is for all for your sake, uh, so that uh, as grace extends more to, to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an ex eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not on the things 
or to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen uh, that are unseen are eternal. Thank you. You may be seated. And as I started out here, the uh, chapter here begins the second. This second Corinthians chapter four begins with therefore. And therefore is used there because Paul is about to draw conclusions to, to uh, statements and arguments that he has posed in the previous chapters. First, I want to emphasize here that Paul explains what he, is a, what, uh, he said about his suffering in the first chapter. There in chapter 1, uh, there beginning with verse number 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us Again, however, I think this the main, the second thing, and the main argument here is that it was not he, but God, who called and equipped him for the ministry. In other words, he didn't get in this on his own. He didn't say, "Oh, you know, that'd be a nice thing to do, be a preacher, and I'm going to go to Bible school and study to be a preacher, and then I'm going to." Get me a nice job in a church, and if that church doesn't meet my needs, I'll just move on to another church, a bigger church of will. You know, that kind of thing, which we see so much of today. But he rather, he understood that it was God who called and equipped him for this ministry among the Gentiles, and particularly this church at Corinth, that's seeing so many issues and problems, and that uh, is what it was perplexing. He said, we are perplexed. <laughs> we are perplexed. So this understanding here led him then to uh, avoid the approach that his critics, that the understanding that, notice it says, that having this ministry by the mercy of God. And I'll address that later, but notice, what was the motivating factor here? Mercy. Not grace. Mercy signifies a negative thing. That God overrules something negative that should be dealt with, with judgment. But then he says it was mercy, that, that uh, the mercy of God, and I'll, I'll address that here. We do not lose heart. So this mercy, or this, this ministry, is by the mercy of God. And that led him to, then I believe, to avoid the approach that his critics took in ministry. And he was very clear about what he, they did and did not do. He stated he was not like some who were peddlers 
of God's Word. We see that at the end of the uh, second chapter. Chapter 2, verse 17. The Greek term there describes someone who does something uh, for a purpose of personal gain. Paul's adversaries were corrupt. And they were corrupting the ministry in order to profit from the churches. Paul said he wanted to avoid that entirely. So in, the, in this fourth chapter, he picks up on what he had declared, uh, and picked upon this and declared, we have renounced the underhanded ways and we have refused to practice or literally walk in. We refuse to walk in cunning. That's craftiness. How can I do this and trick people, you know, craftiness? Or to tamper with God's word, there the second verse. The consequences of mishandling the gospel was availing of the minds of minds to the truth. Here, this, here, here's, a, I think, a powerful situation. Paul is t- trying to tell us, why do they do this? They do this in order to gain converts. They want to talk people into making decisions for Christ so that they can get build their following greater and that will line their pockets more. The problem, Paul says, is the gospel is veiled to those who don't know the truth. And only God can open their eyes. Why would anyone want to, to force converts? I, it reminds me, years ago there, my wife attended a soul-winning seminar for ladies in which they were instructed, you know, you bow your head and, and then you say certain things and 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 you use psychological means there to get them to respond so that you can get more decisions. You can talk people into being Christians. And I th- sadly, that's what's happened in, in, happened in fundamentalism and fill the churches with unbelievers. And this is what Paul is addressing right here. Only God can change hearts. We need to tell them the gospel. We need to proclaim the gospel. But I'm going to tell you something. Proclaiming the gospel openly and honestly will more often than not get you a negative response than a positive response. They don't want to hear it. Everybody thinks they're good. They're good enough. And God's going to take them as they are or He's not going to take them at all. And then they don't believe in God to start with. That's the problem. But uh, the consequence of mishandling the gospel is, uh, is tragic. It's very tragic. And Paul said, I'm going to avoid it like the plague. Through Christ, The Spirit then enables believers to work in God. I mean, work with God, and really God does the work. 
and it's all done to unveil to unveil the gospel to people so that the glory of God, the glory of the Lord, then transforms them into the same image from from that is of the glorified Christ from one degree of glory to another. In other words, a stage by stage process. According to chapter 3, verse 18. So true believers here, and, and here's another thing Paul really emphasizes, true believers are already victorious and triumphant in Christ. But, and here's, here's part of the problem too, and what I think the critics did not like, is that uh, this victory is through defeat. We don't become Christians because somehow we're good. God defeats us and takes us prisoner in our salvation. And that's what Paul described there uh, in the second chapter. He said, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads his own in triumphal procession now when we at first reading there we might think oh that means we're all marching there with christ da, da. victory we are in victory but that's not what he means and he very clearly speaks about that we are led in this Triumphal parade. He's the victor. We're prisoners. We got chains around our neck. Our hands are bound. We're our heads are bowed. We've been conquested. We're the conquest. We've been defeated. And we're led in that victory parade. And what they would do is Priests would come along the side there with censers and would wave these censers. And the re reason for it was because the soldiers by that time after, the after their defeat stunk pretty badly. So as they're being led through the streets there, whoo, the odor, you know, wafted around. So the priests then waving these incense censers there would, would uh, diffuse this bad odor. And that's what Paul says here, that through us the fragrance of the knowledge of him is spread everywhere. See? For we, that is the redeemed sinners, have become by the mercy of God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and as also among those who are perishing. Wow. And so this prompted Paul to ask the question, who is sufficient for these things? Which then he explains in chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as from coming from, our, uh, from uh, us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
And this also explains Paul speaking of his ministry as by the mercy of God. Mercy relates to wretchedness and misery. And it describes the kind of creatures that God uses to minister the gospel. Mercy qualifies the unqualified. Grace gives them the opportunity. Mercy sustains them in it. Paul testified there in, in 1 Timothy chapter 12, verses 12, 13, um, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 12, 13, and 16. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Paul said, I should, I should have received the wrath of God. Not his salvation. But I received mercy. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. It says as an example. In what way would, was the Apostle Paul an example? Well we think. Ah because it. And here, here's the Apostle Paul. Woo. No no. Paul said uh uh. He took a little short guy. That wasn't very good looking. Couldn't preach very well. Called him into the ministry. And humiliated him constantly among his enemies. Oh boy, that's the kind of ministry I want to get into. <laughs> but that's what it was. So notice here, there, there's two things that we see in this chapter that I want you to see with me this morning. The first one is the gospel's effect on the unregenerate. And Paul here in this particular uh, part of it, the first six verses of chapter 4, he, he, uh, he's, he's sandwiched here, he sandwiches his arguments, and there's basically two things that, we, that we're looking at here. These are between two, uh, two slices of bread, if you please, the, the, the declaration of we do not lose heart. That's verse 1. And then it's repeated in verse number 16. And Paul is emphasizing to us that no matter how difficult the path is, we're not discouraged. We do not lose heart. The path was discouraging. It was hard. Because he'll describe that. But he said no matter how difficult it is, we don't lose heart. We are not discouraged, spiritless, worn, worn out, and utterly hopeless. That's what that word lose heart means. The reason we say this is that we are wholly in the hands of God with respect to two things. The success of the gospel in the salvation of sinners and two, the consequences of the gospel with respect to this rejection, to, the, to its rejection. 
Paul chose to put the gospel treasure in jars of clay. Isn't that amazing? Paul said he didn't get the rich and the powerful. He chose jars of clay. Now Paul understood that nothing he said or did could bring any true success, and that th this is the, this is an issue. See, and, and uh, I remember at pastors a lot of times pastors meetings. Well, how many did you have in church on Sunday? <laughs> you know, and when you didn't have a good Sunday, you didn't want to go to those meetings because everything is built on your success. How good you were. How eloquent you could be. How many, how many people loved you. See, this is the problem. But Paul says it doesn't matter. The success of the gospel in the salvation of sinners is not in his hands at all. It's in God's hands only. All he is is a servant, a slave, if you please. Of the gospel. And secondly, the consequences of that gospel with reject to its with respect to its rejection, God chose to put this gospel treasure in jars of clay. So that's what it is. He understood that nothing he said or did could bring true success in the work of the gospel. He was just a, literally a slave of God. His confidence in the success of the work rested not in himself, but in the mercy of God who called him. And thus he renounced prideful attempts to manipulate others with cunning devices that tampered with, literally to handle deceitfully, the word of God. Pride, self-reliance may have characterized the Judaizers but only those who truly understand their own insufficiency to qualify them will look to God to sustain them and to make them successful in that ministry. Therefore, Paul could declare, we do not lose heart. Success in the ministry was judged by open and honest proclamation of the truth as it was commended to the conscience of the hearer. You know when people are telling you the truth. There's something in your own heart that tells you they're honest with me. You may not like it, but you have to acknowledge they're honest with me. Adulteration of the truth in an attempt to, to be successful reproaches God. And that's Paul's argument here. His, his adversaries twisted the truth to make it more palatable, to win over the hearer. But in doing so, they reproached God as if his truth was inadvisably harmful to the church. God would have truth and let that truth fall where it may. He wills it to it so. 
the truth is clearly illustrated by Saul and David in the Old Testament. I won't get into that, but Saul and David. Saul sought to bring glory to himself, as indicated when uh, Samuel didn't come to offer the sacrifice, Saul stepped in. And Samuel rebuked him very severely over that situation. David, on the other hand, would not never criticize Saul, calling him God's anointed, even when Saul was trying to kill him. Secondly here, Paul's competency also rested in the lordship of Jesus Christ and not his own ability. And only God can grant sinners repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, as Paul reminded Timothy again in first, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. The idea of quarrelsome means to get into a, a heated discussion with somebody to try, and you forcibly trying to convince them that they're, they are wrong and you're right. That's his point. He said, don't be quarrelsome, but be kind. That doesn't mean tolerant. And it doesn't mean that you tell them that, they're, that in their sin, they're really good people anyway. No, you tell them the truth. But you don't do it argumentatively. But do it kindly. And, and then it says, able to teach patiently enduring evil. And I think he's referring to their negative response. They're not going to like it. They're going to accuse you of all kinds of, of bad things. But you correct your opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Notice, you, you're not going to convince them, but God may overrule and grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being taken captive by him at, to do his will. God measures success by different standards than humans. And then God, Paul's enemies argued that the gospel he preached was shallow and unworkable. They said that so to ensnare the believers to, into their brand of legalism. However, Paul retorted that it was they who were really blind and failure in the work of the gospel was not due to a lack of ability or credentials, but to spiritual blindness of the perishing. I, I love the way Paul presents it here. It says, in their case, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, un, of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. The God of this world, Satan, he didn't want them to come to the truth. So do you think you can convince them otherwise with your powerful arguments? No, I don't think so. But notice, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And ourselves as your slaves 
servants, it says here. I, it's really the Greek word doulos, slaves, for Jesus' sake. And then he explains it. Four, there's an explanation. God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? When God wants somebody to be saved, he does it just like he did in the creation when it was all dark and God said, let there be light and boom, there was light. And if he wants you to be saved, he will say, let the light shine out of darkness and you will be illuminated by the gospel of Jesus Christ as much as God lit up the world. Wow. Why would anyone ever want to become a Christian if the gospel is so powerful and clear? Everyone not want to be a Christian. Excuse me, I said that wrong. Why would everyone not want to be a Christian if the gospel is so powerful and clear? The problem is not the gospel. It's God's will. And the unbeliever's rejection is not due to any fault in the truth, but in the spiritual blindness of the hearer, which God allows in Satan's blinding. This veiling is the work of, of, of the God of this world. Second uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse two, verses 2 and 3, And you who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now uh, is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yeah. Thus Paul concluded, for we, for, uh, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves your slaves, for Jesus' sake. As slaves of Christ, they proclaim him, and not themselves. Only by humble submission to the Lordship Christ do they give evidence of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And sadly, many preachers believe that they must first sell themselves. They must win people to themselves first before they can win them to Jesus. Perishing sinners are no closer to Christ if they find the preacher popular. Now that doesn't say... that I'm, I want to make a, a caveat here. I, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't make friends of sinners. That we should be friendly to them. Oh, no. But your friendship with them is not going to get them any closer to Jesus Christ because that's His will. It's His will, not yours. And uh, so that brings me to my second point here and that's the effect of it on ministers. And uh, be quick, to, and this is a longer passage, but verses 7 through 12. And here I want to stress to you, Paul says here, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now he's following up, he's following on this matter here. 
And he's trying to say, look, look, think about this a minute. If the salvation of sinners is due to the work of the creative power of God in bringing the light of the, of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ into the heart of sinners so that they will believe on him, Think of this, and we're slaves in this process. We're just conduits. We're just instruments, if you please, in this process. Think about this. Here's a treasure, and he stuck it in a clay jar. That's humbling, but that's also amazing. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? So that we can't get the credit for it at all. So that the it's to show the surpassing power belonging to Christ, to God Himself, not to us. And then he describes what it's like to be in the ministry. <laughs> There's four things here that he shares. By the way, the surpassing power. This word dunamis. We, we talked about that in connection with Peter. In Peter there, he, he uses it in the sense of authority. But here it's used as effectual working. It's the effectual working of God, which belongs to God and not us. So then Paul, and then Paul describes his own... His own uh, Life in, in four things. He says he was afflicted. That's the Greek word. Thilbo. Thilbo. Thilipsis. We often use this. And translate persecution. But it's, it has the idea. Of what they used to do with prisoners. Was they would stretch them out on the ground. Spread eagle. Nailing their hands and their feet. Above, above and and so they couldn't move. And then they would take a, uh, start taking rocks and placing the rocks on their chest. And then that, putting another one on there, and then another one on there. So the pile got heavier and heavier to get them to confess something or to, to acknowledge something. Until finally the weight just crushed them. Thilipsis. Thilbo. It actually, it actually comes from the Greek which uh, has the idea of, an, of a tight, restricted, and narrow place. You can't turn around. <laughs> and he says we're afflicted like this in every way. Think about that. Being in a very tight spot. You can't move. You can't turn around. You, you don't know which way to go. But then he says. He tells the other side of it. If we are afflicted. What generally is going to happen? We're going to be crushed. But Paul says. Yeah we're, we're uh, afflicted. But not crushed. Wow. And he was perplexed, secondly. Uh, he was certainly perplexed when, when uh, he couldn't get uh, information from Titus as to how they had received his letter. So much so that he was, 
He had great opportunity to preach in one place, and he said, "I can't stay here. I got to go. I got to find. I got to find Titus." Which he did meet up with him there in Philippi. He was, but he's perplexed. He's perplexed by the situation here in Corinth. Preachers get perplexed. It means at a loss and doubtful. What's going on? What do I need to do to correct this thing? But then notice he responds to that by saying, not driven to despair. Being perplexed would drive you to despair. That's the natural outcome of being perplexed is despair. Paul said, no. We're perplexed, but we aren't driven to despair. And then he says, and, and despair is to be utterly destitute of measures or resources to renounce all hope. There's no way out of this. This is the end. Paul said no. Then thirdly, he, des he describes himself as persecuted, which means the idea of persecuted here is uh, an animal who is hunted. He's being chased. Pursued by the hunter. He said, we're, we're literally put to flight. We're chased like a hunted animal. But not forsaken by God. He doesn't let the pursuer catch us. And then fourthly, he goes even, and this even gets worse, we're struck down. You know what to be struck down is? I mean, they came came along with boom, and you're flattened. That's it. But not destroyed. Paul said, "This is the ministry. You don't you don't tantalize people to get into. You want to become a minister? Oh yeah, okay. Well, I mean, warn you." You're going to be afflicted. But, uh, and you'll be perplexed. And you'll be persecuted. You'll be literally hunted like a animal. And you'll be knocked down so violently that you can't get up. Now, you still want to be a preacher? Yeah. <laughs> But Paul, but Paul said, in each one of these cases, it's not the end. That may happen to me, but it isn't the end. Why? Why? Notice he says, in order that we can carry about in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. How we respond. How we... Stay, stay the course. How we hold on to our faith. How we pursue everything in the midst of everything that's against us. Reveals Jesus. Always bearing about in the body, the dying, the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. So we also live 
that live are always being given over to death. So here he's explaining it again. We're given over to death. Always. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. We're jars of clay. So death is at work in us so that life may be at work in you. Wow. And uh, then he addresses this, for we had, since then we have the same spirit of faith. There, verse number 13. So, the same spirit of faith. What, what same spirit of faith? David's. He's talking about David here. He doesn't name him, but he does quote him. At, uh, according to what was written, I believed and so I spoke. This is uh, Psalm 116, verse 10, where David said, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. See, David was an example to Paul. So Paul believed and spoke, not fearing any consequences, but trusting that if he died in the process, the God who raised Jesus from the dead would also raise him up and bring him along with the Corinthians, the Corinthian believers, into his eternal presence. Why was Paul so confident that the, these Corinthian believers would be brought along? Because when he first went to Corinth, God revealed himself to Paul and said, don't worry about all the harm that's going to come to you because I, you're not going to be defeated. I have many people in this place. So that brings me to the conclusion. So Paul concluded here and we find him stating this again. We do not lose heart. There in verse 16. Reminds me of Psalm, again, David, Psalm 27. My uh, verses that have, that have been my, sort of my life verses. I had fainted. I quit. I'd given it up. I had fallen by the wayside. I had thrown it out, off. I had, I had left it all completely. And I'm using the King James Version here. I had fainted unless... I had believed to see, not seen to believe. Well, we want to see to believe. Lord, if you just show me, I'll believe you. No, no, no. Believe to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David had lots of hard times before God established him as the king. So David's advice is wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That leads me to three things here by way of closing. Number one, though our outer self, see this is Paul talking again in that last section, though our outer self is wasting away, and it is, Every is, we're getting older, our knees hurt more, It's our joints it's harder and harder for us to get around. Okay? There, our outer self is wasting away. But if we're true believers, our inner self is being renewed every day. 
Wow. Yeah, it may look like we're getting old to the outside world. They may see the gray hairs. But God sees youth inside. <laughs> and we're getting younger and younger. Yeah, hallelujah. Then, secondly, this affliction, this life that we live, this affliction, it's a, it's a thilbo again, see? We're afflicted, he says. Thilbo. This affliction, and he calls it a light affliction. It's both light and it's temporary. And that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For when we get to glory, all the trouble and trial and hardship that we've had in our life is just going to be a hiccup. Right now we're crying out, Oh God, is there any hope? But when we get up there, Whoa, that was nothing. <laughs> that was nothing compared to, to this eternal way to glory. And then thirdly, he advises us to focus our attention not on the temporary things. So if this is the case, if our outward man is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed, and our affliction here is only light and, te and temporary, stop looking at the world. Put your attention... On not on the things that are temporary, but think uh, that is things in our immediate purview, but on the unseen things that have the glorious and eternal value. Because the things that are seen are transient. All of the beautiful things that the world loves are going up in a puff of smoke, according to Peter. They're going to be burned. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, thank you for this powerful, powerful chapter in God's Word. As Paul lays it out, Lord, we, we recognize we're just, we're just slaves. We're jars of clay. We've been defeated we're being led in the triumphal procession. But in that, Lord, you're making us to be an odor, a sweet-smelling odor of Christ in the world. Lord, enable us to stay strong. And you will. Or, Lord, we've often said, and I believe this to be the case, that it is those who endure to the end that are truly showing that they have been born again. And it doesn't matter how difficult it is to get there, those who endure to the end are the ones who will be saved, those who have stamina, strength, endurance, who don't quit, but keep on keeping on. They're the ones who will be victorious in the end. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.